This episode of Game Master's Journey is brought to you by my patrons, readers, and listeners. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, visit LexStarWalker.com slash support. Starwalker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 294 of Game Master's Journey. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and the art of game mastering. I've been running RPGs for over 30 years now, and I produce this show in hopes that you can benefit from my experiences, my triumphs, and my mistakes. Hello again, my friend. I am so glad that you have joined me today for another episode of Game Master's Journey. I'm pretty excited about today's topic because today I'm going to talk about Vampire the Masquerade. So last episode, episode 293, I gave a little bit of an overview of the storyteller system uh, by White Wolf Games that is the overall game system that all of their World of Darkness games use. Games like Vampire the Masquerade, Changeling the Dreaming, Werewolf the Apocalypse, uh, Mage the Ascension, and Wraith the Oblivion. Um, Those are the the full game lines that they did, I think in order of popularity, <laughs> it would probably be uh, Vampire the Masquerade was definitely the most po- popular, followed, I think, by Werewolf the Apocalypse. After that, that's where it gets a little fuzzy. I feel like the games Changeling the Dreaming, Mage the Ascension, and Wraith the Oblivion, none of them had anything near the popularity that Vampire or Werewolf did as far as how those three stacked up, I, I really don't know. I never, you know, in my times running and, and playing these games, I never heard of a race game and I never heard of a mage game. And I ran a lot of changeling myself, but I never heard of anyone else <laughs> running changeling. So all I can say for sure is that those games, uh, those three games were not nearly as popular as Vampire and Werewolf were. But as far as how those three stacked up, I mean, I don't know if I had to guess, I would guess that it was Changeling and then Mage and then Wraith. I I definitely feel like Wraith was probably the least played of of all of the games, although that might be true. It might be Mage, just because Mage was seen by many people, rightfully so, to be a bit daunting and (laughs) intimidating of a game to run or play. It's a very complex game. So I wouldn't be shocked to hear that Mage was the least played of of the games, but I I guess it was either Mage or Wraith. But that said, I'm I'm very biased because I myself ran a lot of Changeling and I love Changeling. I I ultimately I think in some ways I liked it even better than Vampire. Um, So I tend to assume (laughs) that Changeling was more played than Mage or Wraith. It certainly was by me, but I don't know if that's really true or not. But, but I can say that I saw a lot of vampire games and I saw some werewolf games. But other than the Changeling games I ran myself, I never saw any Changeling, Wraith, or Mage games. So anyway, last episode, I, I did an overview of the system. All of these games use the same 
uh, system for, for their mechanics, and they all exist within the same setting, but they're each uh, separate individual games. And, and this could almost be a topic for an episode all by itself, but the games were not necessarily balanced against one another. Each game on its own ran great. You know, wh- whatever of those five games you ran or played, it, it was fine. It was great. And as Craig and I discussed in, in the couple episodes that I had him on when we were talking about his mage campaign, which I believe were episodes 291 and 292. Hopefully that's right. If not, it's close. But as we discussed, the, you, you know, you could, for instance, you could run a mage game and you could bring vampires or changelings or race or werewolves or whatever you wanted into your game as, as non-player characters. And for instance, the mage book would give you some guidelines on using those other types of supernaturals as NPCs, as antagonists, without having to get those books from those different game lines. So for instance, if you're talking mage, uh, mage would tell you how you could use a werewolf in your game just using the systems presented in the mage book. So, you know, of course, it wasn't exactly the same as if you were playing werewolf and made a werewolf, you know, because that each game had some of its own systems for its specific uh, supernatural type. But each of the games presented the other supernatural types as NPCs that the GM or the storyteller, as, as they're called in this game, could use as antagonists or, or NPCs or whatever. However, the games were not necessarily balanced against one another if it came to, if you as a storyteller wanted to run a game and maybe one of your players is playing a vampire and another player is playing a werewolf and a third player is playing a mage um, and so on and so on. Those, to my understanding, I never really tried to do that myself, but it, but I did talk to some people that played in games like that or or ran games like that and they usually did not work very well. Um, one big reason was the various types of supernaturals uh, did not usually get along with each other. For instance, vampires and werewolves were bitter enemies. So how you could possibly justify having a vampire and a werewolf in the same party uh, was quite a bit of a stretch. Now, it, it could be done because one thing that they did is there is usually a, a specific type of each supernatural that might get along better with one of the others. So for instance, in vampire, there were, there is a clan called the gangrel that, I mean, although they weren't chummy with the werewolves or anything like that, they had better chances of giving, getting along with them than the other vampires did. So, you know, if you had a, a game and you wanted to have a, a player play a vampire and another player wanted to play a werewolf, um, it might work if the player playing the vampire agreed to play a gangrel. I also believe in the werewolf game that there um, there was a type of werewolf that it was a little more tolerant of the vampires. So it would work best if, if the player playing the werewolf played that type of werewolf. But um, the few times that I heard of from people that played or ran these kinds of games, you know, usually the players uh, didn't play along that well and they just wanted to play whatever they wanted to play. So they wouldn't necessarily choose the character types that would really go well together. And a lot of times these games devolved into infighting and, and things like that. And they, they were just kind of a mess is my understanding. Um, the other problem with trying to run them together like that was that, as I mentioned, the, the different supernaturals weren't necessarily balanced with one another. Um, they sometimes had vastly different power levels. For instance, you know, I imagine if you had one player playing a beginning vampire and another player 
playing a beginning mage, in comparison, the two characters would seem very different. Um, the vampire would seem far more powerful than the mage. The mage would seem almost powerless by comparison. A changeling would probably be somewhere in the middle, and a werewolf would be more powerful than all of them by, by a fair margin. Now, if you were talking about more advanced characters, things changed yet again. I, I think as, as characters got more advanced and more powerful, um, there became a point where a vampire became more powerful than a werewolf. And ultimately, at the highest power levels, I, I think the mages could, uh, depending on the build, but certain mages could could become more powerful than than any of the other supernaturals. But a lot of it really depended on this specific character and how the character was built. But there didn't really seem to be much, if any, effort on White Wolf's part to make those balanced. So that was another thing that a, that a GM or a storyteller trying to run a game like that faced, another problem or, or difficulty was not only trying to figure out a way to have it make sense in the world and in the story that these very different supernatural creatures were working together toward a common cause, but also dealing with the fact that chances were, would be very good that the different player characters would would be at very different power levels. And, you know, that can cause all kinds of problems in, in a gaming group. So usually, at least in my experience and people I talk to, these games were run and played individually, you know, so you were either playing vampire or you were playing werewolf or you playing changeling or, or something else. So yeah, last episode I, I did an overview of the overall system. Um, so today I thought I would talk about vampire, the masquerade, which was the first of these games that was released. It was the most powerful, I think by a pretty large margin. I don't know any specific numbers, but just from my experience and, and from people I've talked to, I mean, there wasn't any really comparison between the popularity of Vampire and the other games. And, and like I said, I did hear of some werewolf games. So, so you know, I think werewolf was definitely second in popularity after Vampire. And then far, far behind werewolf and, and way far behind Vampire were, were the other three games. So I thought Vampire would be a fun one to start with. I played quite a bit of Vampire. Changeling, actually, I don't think I ever... Well, other than uh, one time at Gen Con, I got to play Changeling uh, with the creator of, of the game, Ian Lemke, uh, as the storyteller slash game master, and that was awesome. That was a lot of fun. But I think that was maybe the only time I ever played Changeling as a player. I always ran it as a storyteller. Like, like I said, I never knew of anyone else that ran Changeling. I did, however get to play mage some as a player not a whole lot but i did get or not mage i'm sorry vampire i get i did get to play vampire a little bit as a player here and there but yeah it's actually the only one of these games other than that one time at gen con with changeling it's the only one of these games that i've had experience as both a player and a gm vampire I, i played a little bit and then i ran it quite a bit changeling i ran a lot um, mage I never played or ran until very recently uh, when Craig started his mage campaign and yeah I never I never played werewolf and I never played wraith so yeah I thought today I would I would talk about vampire specifically because although these games are all using the same system that's as far as things that are common between all all of the games but, you know, obviously, you know, a vampire is going to have some different abilities than a werewolf does, which are going to be different than what a mage does, et cetera. 
So when you got to the supernatural aspect of a character, you know, those were were quite different um, between the games, although they were all part of the same overall system. So I thought it would be fun to, to talk about Vampire, to get into some of those other aspects of the system um, that are specific to Vampire, and, and also to talk a bit more about what I liked uh, about these games and, and what I liked about their approach to role-playing and how really, I think more than any other game I've played, Vampire and Changeling made me the GM that I am today, and they taught me how to GM and how to take my GMing to a level beyond, you know, the D&D um, dungeon crawl kind of thing, uh, which is not to disparage people who who play those kinds of games and enjoy those kinds of games. There, there's nothing wrong with that. I've played um, a lot, some dungeon crawls. I honestly, I love a good dungeon crawl. And, and I feel like, it, you know, if I'm going to play D&D, that's kind of what I prefer these days, especially with 5th edition. I, I feel like that's kind of what the game is best at is just a, a good old fashioned, you know, plain Jane dungeon crawl. So, yeah, nothing against people that enjoy that. I'm not I'm not trying to say that the, this approach is inherently better, although it is one I prefer and find more fun and engaging. And I mean, in my opinion, I think it's better. But uh, I'm not saying that it is better, if, if that makes sense. And I definitely don't want to, you know, disparage other games and other approaches. But vampires, you know, and, and it was a lot, I think, vampire, because that was the first one I encountered, very much kind of opened my mind to a new approach to running a game and just how I thought about a game and 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 how I approached it. Uh, that that really, for me at least, took me to a whole new level as a GM, and is still, uh, it's still the approach I use for the most part. Um, sometimes when I when I run a lot of D and I get a little, I get the D and D blinders on, and I get a little mired in, in the D and D approach, and, and I kind of learn lose some of this finesse. But I, I'm definitely most happy, and and my best games and sessions are are when I take the the approach that I learned first from Vampire and then later from Changeling. So, you know, a lot of the ideas presented in these games as far as the approach to uh, game mastering and role-playing games now may not seem like that big of a deal or, or may not seem like anything new or, or original or unique or anything like that. But at the time that Vampire came out especially, it was. You know, this was a new approach. This was a, a new way of approaching games, um, at least for any kind of role-playing game that had any kind of popularity or following at all. Um, this was the first game of its kind to focus more on drama and story and character and not so much just, you know, a war game or a dungeon crawl or a very combat-focused kind of experience. So to uh, to structure this episode or to kind of guide me in, in what I thought I wanted to talk about today, I dug up an old copy of Vampire the Masquerade 2nd Edition. This is from, oh, I gave you the date uh, back in the last episode, but I don't remember. It's early 90s, I think, uh, is when this book was was first published. There have been some, some uh, revisions and other editions since, which I talked about in the previous episode. You can go... Check that out if you're curious about what all that's about. 
but uh, I, I, I found this uh, second edition uh, copy. And as far as our Mage campaign, we're playing the 20th anniversary edition of Mage. And if or when I run a vampire campaign in the future, I will be using the 20th anniversary edition of Vampire. But uh, I don't I don't have that book right now. And also, it's a very huge book. It has a lot of uh, supplemental material in it, you could say, where this book is just Vampire. It's just the basic core game. And it has everything in it I need to talk about. And, and it's also what I'm familiar with. I'm, you know, I know this book inside and out, backwards and forwards. Um, so I went through the book and kind of pulled out some things that I wanted to highlight and talk about today as far as things about this game I really liked, things about it that, that were different, especially at the time, and also, you know, talk a bit more about the system and the mechanics uh, as it applies to vampires specifically. And, and, you know, because the the overview of the system I gave last episode, well, it, it was only kind of half of the picture because a lot of the system is uh, the supernatural side of it. I mean, you are playing a supernatural entity. It's a big part of what your character is and what your character can do. And just by the nature of the last episode, I, I didn't go into any of that because that differs from game to game. So uh, I definitely wanted to to go into some of that stuff. Uh, I'll do this with Vampire. And uh, depending on the feedback I get on this, if people are interested, I could do a similar episode with Changeling and then possibly a similar episode with Mage uh, with the, the help of Craig. And I are already reached out to Craig and, and he's willing to, uh, to help with that. And uh, that's, that's where we'd have to stop because, again, I never played or ran Werewolf or Wraith. But if we do all three of those, um, you'll have a really good idea of what's going on. So yeah, let me know if you'd be interested in an episode like this about Changeling and or Mage. And uh, yeah, it can probably make that happen. So if you are lucky enough to have a copy of one of these books for one of these games that, that you can read, if for some reason maybe you, you're one of those RPG collectors that have all these games that you've never played and never even read before, if you're one of those people and you've never read the book, I highly recommend that you do so and that you especially focus on the sections of the book that talk about game mastering and storytelling. So as part of this kind of new approach to gaming that this game took, they coined some new terms for things that we're familiar with, rightfully so, I think. I I think it better fits the approach they were taking and, and it better helps to divorce us from you know whatever habits we were in from playing D&D or or Shadowrun or whatever else we were playing at the time to get into this different mindset. So one of those terms is storytelling. So instead of calling the person running the game the dungeon master or the game master, uh, they were called the storyteller. You were a storyteller. And game mastering was called storytelling because, again, you're telling a story together with the players. So, so right there from the beginning, you know, we're, we're setting a very different tone and, and we're establishing a different approach. So if you're looking at like the vampire second edition book, this would be the third chapter called storytelling. But this chapter or a similar chapter will be in any of these books, any of the core books for any of the games, for any of the editions you may have. Now, I haven't looked at the 20th anniversary edition to, uh, make sure that this is in there and it's the same, but I'm pretty confident that it is because at least with the the mage one that I have some experience with now, uh, there seem to be a lot of copy pasting going on there 
um, from the various editions, uh, including some some editorial ad- or oversights where they are ov- obviously grabbing, you know, this table from that edition from that book and this other table from that other edition, that other book. And they were disagreeing and the editors didn't catch that. And, you know, so there's some confusion in the book because they were copy pasting so much from all these different books. So because of that, I'm, I'm pretty confident that you can probably find word for word this exact thing in, you know, if you have the 20th anniversary v- version of, you know, vampire, changeling, mage, whatever, you can probably find the storytelling ch- chapter in there. And it's word for word exactly the same as what I'm looking at now in the vampire second edition book. Now, if you have the fifth edition, you're on your own there. That was not uh, made by White Wolf. It's a, it's a, new, a different game company. And I looked a bit at the fifth edition version of Vampire, um, which fifth edition, by the way, is the most recent edition. And uh, they made a lot of changes to the systems and, and how vampires worked. And I hated all of them. So, uh, yeah, I have no intention of ever running or, or even playing uh, any of those games. Um, so I have no idea if they, if they rewrote or, or have totally different chapters as far as, you know, storytelling and, and all that stuff. Um, since it's a totally different game studio, I would imagine that, that they rewrote this, but maybe it's the same. I don't know. But anyway, if you can get a hold of a second edition or revised edition or 20th anniversary edition, I can guarantee you that uh, you're going to find these same chapters, these same sections where they go into their approach to running a game and how to approach it. And yeah, if you've never read that before, I highly recommend you do because yeah, I, when I think of all the things I've learned that made me the GM I am today and that made me a good GM, I hope uh, 99% of that stuff came from this book, Vampire the Masquerade and or Changeling, the dreaming second edition in these chapters. So they're worth a read, even if you have no intention of running or playing these games, uh, just for general thoughts on game mastering and, and how to approach it and how to approach it from a more storytelling perspective. Now, I'm not going to go into this in detail because there's a lot to cover today. I want to do kind of just a quick overview of things. But, uh, you know, if this is something you want to hear more about, if you want me to read this chapter to you or, or at least go through it and, and kind of go over some of what they talk about, you know, that could be an episode. But that's getting pretty granular at that point. So if I hear from people that, that they want that, I, I'd be willing to do it. But uh, that's probably the only way I'd do it because, yeah, we're, we're getting pretty focused at that point. And I don't know if anyone or how many people would really want that kind of thing. But but I'm down to do it if people want it. Let me know. But some of the topics discussed in this chapter are you as a storyteller or a game master using things like suspense, flashbacks, parallel stories, foreshadowing, dream sequences, and symbolism in your games. And I mean, my goodness, if you can put yourself in the mindset of someone in the 90s who has only played or run D&D, this is all new, right? At least back then, even now, in 5th edition, with all the editions of D&D we've ever had, I don't know that I've ever seen them say anything about, you know, flashbacks, parallel stories, foreshadowing, dream sequences, symbolism. I mean, we're just on a whole nother level here, right, than, than we ever talk about in a D&D book. To, to draw an analogy, it'd be like, you know, D&D is like your middle school... <laughs> 
storytelling class. And now we're, we're at the high school level, if not the college level. Um, so it's just a whole nother level and, and a whole different experience and, and a whole different approach to running a game and, and enjoying a game together with, with your friends. This idea of, and, and these are all things that come from writing, from actual writing. You know, I'm, I'm a writer. I, I write science fiction, you know, suspense, flashbacks, uh, parallel stories, foreshadowing, dream sequences, symbolism. Yeah, like the book I'm, I'm working on right now, Critical Balance, uh, I have all those things, except I don't have a parallel story. But I have suspense, I have flashbacks, I have foreshadowing, I have a dream sequence. Actually, I think I have two. And I have symbolism. It's all in there. I mean, these are, these are concepts from literature um, that are being applied to a role-playing game. And, and that is really, if I had to wrap all this up in a nutshell, that's what this is. It's taking concepts from literature and concepts from drama, from stage drama, and applying it to role-playing games. So yeah, those were all um, eye-openers, learning about those things and, and thinking about using those in a game. And they're things that I use. Um, one of my favorites of these are, are dream sequences. Now, th- now this is something that, that, again, you know, this is a book from, what, 30-some years ago. Um, and especially now, you know, people who've watched Critical Role, you know, this is old news to you because Matt Mercer uses dream sequences. But, you know, this wasn't a thing in D&D back in the day <laughs> when people were just doing dungeon crawls and killing goblins and collecting treasure. I mean, th- I'm sure there were DMs that, that used dream sequences, but there is no mention of them in the, in the DMG, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, when I read this at, as a young GM in high school, you know, I'd never thought of using a dream sequence in a game before. But I loved it, and I've since used dream sequences probably in every game I've I've run. Not necessarily every campaign, but every game. I know I've used them in d and I've definitely used them in Changeling and Vampire. I, I don't know if I used them in Star Trek. We didn't play a ton of Star Trek or, or the same with the new Star Wars game games. But uh, definitely D&D, Vampire, Changeling, oh yeah. I've, I've used my dream sequences quite a few times in all those games. And the same with all these other things. Now, something I thought I could talk about today as far as getting into something specific uh, that I found in here is a list of do's and don'ts for the storyteller. Um, and again, I'm not going to go into detail on this stuff, um, but, but I thought I could, I could go through these really quick just to, to show you, you know, some of the stuff they offered here. So number one, keep all the characters in mind. You know, provide something for every character to do, every player character, no matter what the scene is, you know. That this again isn't you know groundbreaking now, but thirty years ago it it was. Go beyond the rules. Uh, the rules are for keeping characters in line. If your imagination is superior to the rules, then go beyond them. <laughs> it's great stuff. Encourage the players to role play among themselves. Take breaks. Hey, there's some great advice. Take a break when you need it. Encourage player input. Don't run the game without being aware of what your players like and don't like. So those are some do's. Here are some don'ts as a storyteller. Oh, here's a big one. This is, this is still a big thing today. Do not take away the character's free will. Players are invariably protective of what they consider to be the free will of their characters. They want real choices and the freedom to choose their character's actions. 
While they need to feel that if they do something stupid, they will be punished, you don't want them to feel as if you will punish them if they come up with a clever idea because it wasn't what you had anticipated. As true today as it was then, that's true no matter what game you're running. You know, and I've talked about this a lot on the show, I'm pretty sure. You know, the idea of consequence, right? You, you know, so well, I don't want to say so many, but I've definitely seen game masters who take this idea of giving the players free will, giving their characters free will way too far. And just, you know, whatever the players come up with, it just works somehow, no matter how stupid it is. And, you know, that's not, <laughs> that's not what they're saying here at all. You know, and, and they even say here, you know, they, the players do need to feel like if they do something stupid, they will be punished for it. There will be consequences for it, just like in real life, right? You know, that's not taking away their free will. You know, there's a big difference between that and punishing the players because they came up with a solution to the problem that you didn't think of or that you don't want to deal with. Not not because it's stupid, but because you didn't think of it and you're not prepared for it. Here's another don't. Don't force the characters into a predetermined plot. <laughs> yeah, we call that railroading today. Don't do it. Don't let luck rule the plot. So, so here they're talking about not letting the dice ruin your game. Right. Not, not letting some random dice roll ruin what's happening. You know, you as an intelligent, sentient storyteller or game master, you are above the dice. The dice are just stupid, inanimate objects. You know, don't let them make decisions for you in your game. Don't cater to stereotypes. It's probably even more important today than it was then. Well, <laughs> it was just as important back then. We just were too dumb to realize it. Don't ignore the character's traits. And uh, here it's specifically pointing out, you know, don't forget about any flaws that the characters may have. So part of this game was um, you, you could, your character could have flaws um, that were, you know, in addition to storytelling things, were also mechanical things uh, that could come to bite you. And, you know, you got to remember those and use those or they, they don't serve their purpose. All right. So as I said, you know, kind of the the revolutionary thing about this approach at the time was pulling inspiration from literature and pulling inspiration from theater to inform role-playing games. And now it's so obvious, especially the theater thing, you know, but even the literature thing, because we are creating stories together, you know, which is what you do in literature, only a single person usually is doing it. But even more the theater thing. I mean, there are so many similarities between what we do in a role-playing game and, and what you do, you know, as an actor in a play, or if you're the storyteller as the director of a play. And one thing that I really loved, you know, I talked about them recording, you know, new terms for old things like storyteller instead of dungeon master, instead of calling your series of games or your series of sessions a campaign, it was called a chronicle, things like that. Well, one thing I really loved, and this is very much still how I look at preparing for role-playing games as a game master, is they use the term scenes. What, you know, in D&D, you would probably call an encounter. You know, people talk about encounters in D&D, like I'm going to prepare an encounter for the game tonight. Um, they called scenes, which, you know, that comes right from theater. Um, or, or, you know, more, more in our more modern day from, from television and movies. Um, and, you know, that they very simply said, you know, a scene is what happens in a given location. So when you 
go from one location to another location, you've now ended one scene and started another scene. But but just the idea of, you know, I'm sitting down to prepare for a game session. I'm going to run some vampire and I approach it in the mindset of scenes. So when I sit down to approach preparing for a vampire game, the first question I ask myself is, what is the first scene? What is our opening scene? Where does it take place? What is the setting for the first scene? And the first thing you do there, or at least that I would do there, is come up with my opening description that sets that scene, that lets the players know what the setting of that scene is. Uh, Maybe it's a graveyard at midnight uh, in the middle of a thunderstorm. Okay, we'll go with the cliche there, right? That's where our opening scene takes place. So with this beginning description that I'm going to use to begin the game and to say, okay, everybody, we're playing vampire now. I'm going to set the scene by describing it, by describing this location where the characters find themselves. And, you know, that serves multiple purposes. First of all, I'm setting the stage so they know where they are. You know, if there is going to be a fight or something, they know, you know, what kind of environment they're in, what what uh, objects might be around that they can use, what kind of cover they could take, things like that. But even more importantly, for, for these games especially, um, I can set the tone and the mood, right? So So if I tell you you're in a graveyard at midnight during a thunderstorm, you know, already that's suggesting a certain mood and a certain tone. And then I can do that even more so with the language that I use, the specific words I choose to describe that scene. And something that I, that I often did in preparing for these games, whether it was Vampire or Changeling, is if I had the time, you know, <laughs> for a D&D game, you're preparing encounters, right? You're like, oh, how many goblins are there going to be? And how many ogres are there going to be? And what's their CR? And what's the treasure going to be? You know, blah, 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 blah. And it's all this kind of mechanical, like you're playing with Legos kind of stuff. Um, where with this, it's more like you're writing a story or you're writing a play or more to the, more to the truth of it, you're, you're writing the skeleton of a story or a play or the beginning of a story or a play that the players are then going to help you fill out as you play the game together. So, you know, my prep for a vampire game would be, you know, what are my scenes going to be? You know, maybe, you know, we're going to play for a few hours. So I figure, okay, we'll probably have time for three, four, maybe five scenes. So, you know, I'll prepare for four scenes, let's say. Um, I think we'll probably only have time for three, but that way I've got an extra one if, if they go through one of the scenes more quickly than I think. And so, you know, in preparing those four scenes, you know, I decide where do each of these scenes, you know, where, where do they happen? What's the location? And, you know, what is, what is happening in the scene? What are the NPCs doing? What's, what's kind of the, what's the story of that scene? But then what I would do whenever I had the time is for each of those scenes, I would actually write out the description that I wanted to read to the players to set that scene. And the reason I would write it out as opposed to just doing it on the fly at at the table during play is so that I could set that mood, so I could set that tone, so I could choose my adjectives and my adverbs and all those things to really set the mood that I want and, and give it that emotional timbre 
that I want. You know, vampire, you're you're often trying to set a dark and brooding, um, suspenseful mood. You know, uh, a kind of scary, you know, horror tone. You know, those kinds of things. And so, the way that you set that scene, that you know, your little paragraph you tell the players at the beginning before they tell you what they want to do. You can totally do that with with using language and, and really thinking about how you want to present it, how you want to describe it, you know, how you want to talk about, you know, how they're seeing this graveyard in brief flashes from the lightning, you know, how, I mean, they're vampires, so that probably most or all of them can see pretty well in the dark anyway, but, you know, there's these flashes of lightning where suddenly everything is is just garishly illuminated for a split second and then it's back to darkness and you know the claps of thunder that they can feel as much as they hear and you know the moss growing on the gravestones and all these things that was the focus of of the prep is what are my scenes going to be where are they going to take place and how can i really describe them in an evocative way so when i say and turn to the players and say okay what do you want to do like they're in the right headspace they're they're in the scene they're they're they know what their characters are feeling because the, the scene is real to them. The the place is real to them and the mood and the tone of it is, is real to them. And that's what my prep was about. It wasn't about hit dice and hit points and picking spells for my monsters and all that stuff. And it's just for me personally, at least, and I think for a lot of people, uh, for a lot of GMs, it's a lot more fun prep to do than, than all that mechanical stuff. But as I said, you know, this this book was what first opened my mind to this, of, of thinking of it in the terms of scenes, thinking of my game sessions in the turn, terms of scenes. And I've since taken that to other games. When I, when I prepare a D&D game these days, and, and ever since I first read this, I, I think of it in terms of scenes. You know, whatever the game book tells me I should be doing, this is what I do. I think of it in terms of scenes. All right, so let's get into some mechanical stuff now. So in the last episode, I, I talked about how the, the basic core mechanic of the game works. And I'll just um, recap that really quickly just to refresh your memory. So your character has nine attributes that are in three categories. You have your three physical attributes, three social attributes, and three mental attributes. And then you have your abilities, which are all your skills and knowledges and talents and things like that. And then all of those uh, have a value from one to five, or if it's an ability, you can have a zero um, because you don't know that skill or that that talent or that knowledge or whatever. Um, but the attributes, you're only going to have at least one in. So you have a, you know, it can go from one to five and any role that you make for the most part in these games are going to be, you're going to be putting an attribute and an ability together. So for instance, if you're going to try to climb something that would be like strength plus climbing, I, I assume is a, is a ability in the game or, or no, it's athletics is what it would be. Strength plus athletics. So this system is a dice pool game. It uses 10-sided dice. That's the only dice it uses. And your total for your attribute and your ability is how many dice you get to roll. So if you're rolling the climb and you have a strength of three and you have an athletics of two, three plus two is five. So you would roll five 10-sided dice to see if you succeed. And then what you're looking for on those dice, you're looking for successes. 
So instead of some games I've played, like for instance, the old West End game, Star Wars game, which were dice pool games, but where you would have to add all these dice together, which, ugh, math, way too much math, especially when you had huge dice pools, which you could have in that game. Um, with this, you don't, you don't need to add all these 10 sided together. Instead, you're looking for a specific number on each dice. Um, or each die. I always confuse the singular and the plural of that. So your standard difficulty for most of your rolls was a difficulty six, which means that on each 10-sided die, if you had a six or higher, that was a success. And then you would tell the GM how many successes you got. Uh, One other aspect of the system was if you rolled a one on a die, it canceled out a success on another die. And then another thing was if you rolled a 10, then that was something special if you were specialized in one of those things, either the attribute or the ability. I I guess I can go into that. So so it's pretty simple, actually. Any uh, trait in the game, whether it's an attribute or ability or something else, if you have it at a 4 or higher, um, 4 or 5 is high as you can go, then you could pick a specialty, a specialization within that trait. So let's say, um, I don't know, let's say you had a four in strength and maybe your specialization you chose, you decided your specialization was strong arms. I don't, you know, you can make up your own specialization. So we'll say um, you've got a four strength and you specialize in strong arms. So what that meant is any time that you were making a role in which that specialty would apply. So if you're climbing, I would say that your strong arms specialty would apply to that because having strong arms would would make that easier. Then if you rolled a 10 on any die, instead of that being one success, it counted as two. So that's how the specialization system worked. So uh, yeah, so the standard difficulty was six, but you could have other difficulties. So really quickly... They don't, in the core system of the game, they don't have difficulty two or one um, just because they considered those too low to really deal with. So it started at difficulty three, was easy, four was ro- routine, five is straightforward, six is the standard again, uh, seven is challenging, eight is difficult, and then nine is extremely difficult. And so, you know, running this game as a GM, when, when someone needs to make a roll... You know, you just have to decide how difficult is this thing from easy to extremely difficult. And then that tells you what the difficulty is. Um, or if it's not a big deal or you think it's pretty, you know, standard, then you just use the default difficulty of six. And then the other aspect of this was you could get multiple successes on a roll. So the number of successes you got determines the degree of your success. So one success is a marginal success, two is moderate, three is complete, four is exceptional, five is phenomenal. And, and that's all kind of abstract. You know, it's just like you succeeded better and better the more successes you got. Um, this came more into play uh, in combat. For instance, you know, you're, when you're rolling damage, then more successes is more damage. Another cool thing about the system is when you make an attack roll, any extra successes you roll, any successes above and beyond what you needed to succeed at that attack, add dice to your damage roll. So um, let's say you're making an attack with a sword at someone, and let's say you get five successes. So you need one success to hit them. So you got four successes above and beyond that. So you would get to add four dice to whatever your, your damage roll was. 
Um, so maybe your damage with your sword, I, I think it was, gosh, what was the sword? I think maybe it was like strength plus two. So if your strength was three plus two is five, so you'd have five dice normally to roll damage for your sword. But since you got an extra, I forgot the numbers I said, let's say you got an, I think it was four successes. You got an extra four successes on your damage or on your attack roll. Um, you get to add four more dice to that dice pool when you roll damage. So that's pretty cool. So yeah, that really brought a lot of versatility to the system uh, for the GM be- or the storyteller because not only could you decide the difficulty um, as far as your target number on each die for a success, but if if something the player was trying to do was really complicated or really difficult, you could also require more than one success for them to succeed. All right, so you know I, I was talking about how innovative uh, this game was in its time and how much I learned from it as a storyteller and how much it shaped uh, my approach, you know, all the way through today to to running games. And another big uh, concept that this game gave me was the idea of a prelude. And so all of the White Wolf games use this, you know, Changeling Mage, Vampire, Werewolf, they all have this idea of a prelude. And a prelude was a a usually short, like shorter than a normal game session, a short game session that the storyteller would do with an individual player all by themselves. And this was done before the first session where everybody played together that, that was in the group. It was not exactly a session zero. I mean, this was before anyone had ever thought of session zero, or at least before the, the term had been coined. You know, session zero is usually where everybody as a group gets together. Maybe they make their characters and you talk about the campaign, blah, 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 blah. That's not what this was. This was one-on-one storyteller or GM with one player. And basically what you did during the prelude is you help the player establish who their character is now and kind of what their life has been like, what their experience has been like up to this point. So keeping in mind that in all of these games, you're, you're playing some kind of supernatural being. And as I said in the last episode, you know, with all these supernaturals, you, you began life as a normal human. And then at some point you, um, were changed into a supernatural creature or your supernatural nature awakened within you. And then everything changed. So, you know, we're talking about vampire today. So with a vampire, you know, you, you were a normal human. And then at some point in, your life, a vampire came along and ate you and turned you into a vampire. So what the prelude did was you would sit down with the player and you would go through what was called their embrace, which is when uh, they were made into a vampire. So you'd start out a little bit, you know, kind of setting up, okay, what was your life like as a human? You know, what were you doing? You know, what were things like? And then together, and, and this was very much a collaborative thing, even more so than the rest of the sessions you would run with the entire group. The prelude was very much a back and forth between the player and the the storyteller. Dice were either rolled very little or not rolled at all. You, it was recommended in the books that you not roll dice at all. Instead, together, you you came up with this stuff. So the, the player had as much say in this, uh, you know, this history that you're coming up with for the character as the GM did. So you'd figure out, okay... You know, you were a human. What 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 were you like? What was your life like? And then you know, this vampire comes along and and makes you into a vampire. Who was this vampire? What was the vampire like? 
What type of vampire? What clan of vampire was it? Why did they choose you? How did this happen? You know, how, how did this person approach you? How did they seduce you? Or how did they assault you? Or however they did it, however they made you into a vampire, how did that go down? Were you given a choice? Did the vampire come to you and reveal what they were and, and give you the choice of whether you wanted to be like them or not? Or did they just take your life from you and make you one of them with, with you know, no uh, thought to what you wanted at all? You know, how did that happen? A lot of that would be informed a bit by the clan that you chose. The the clans were the different bloodlines of vampires, and they they would talk a bit in the clan descriptions about not only what kind of people that clan looked for as far as, you know, people they thought would be good vampires to add to their number, but also um how they would they would often approach uh, embracing that person. You know, some of the clans would just take them by force. Some of them would convince them or ask them or, you know, they all had kind of different approaches to, to how they did it. But during the prelude, you, you would establish all this. Um, you would role play some scenes together. Um, usually you would role play the actual embrace itself. You might role play the first time they met their, their sire, which is what they called the vampire who, who made them a vampire, their daddy vampire, you could say. Um, so you might, you might, you know, do a scene together where they, they first meet this person. Um, you do the scene where they're made into a vampire and what that was like. And then you might do a few scenes after that, just kind of establishing, you know, what their existence as a vampire has been like so far with, with their sire, you know, in this game as a new vampire, you are very much like a child. In fact, you're actually called a child. And in the beginning, you are under your sire's thumb, like they are your parent and you are a small child. They uh, have total dominion over you. Um, you are expected to obey them without question. They can kill you for any or no reason and no other vampire will blink an eye at it. And they are also responsible for anything that you do. Um, so if you go out and do something bad, um, they're held responsible for what you did. So a lot of times, you know, it kind of depended on what the, what the GM, what the storyteller wanted to do with the Chronicle. But a lot of times um, you would skip over that part where you're, you're still considered a child and you haven't been, um, where you haven't reached adulthood as a vampire. What happened is, is, you know, vampires live in cities and in every city there is, uh, the vampires have a hierarchy and there is one vampire that is in, in power over all of them called the prince that is the head vampire of the city. And once your sire decided that you were ready, you would be presented to the prince. And, you know, if the prince accepted you, uh, then now you are, you are a vampire. You are an adult. You can now make your own decisions, do your own things. And you're now on your own. You're no longer, you know, if, if you screw up, it doesn't come down on your sire. It comes down on you. But before that, before you're presented to the prince, uh, in the vampire world, you you have no rights. You are pretty much the property of your sire, and they can do with you whatever they want. So a lot of times in games, you you know you would skip to the point where um, all the player characters had gotten to that part. Um, but sometimes, depending what the storyteller wanted to do, you you could begin the story when they're they're still children and and they kind of have to do whatever their sires say, uh, especially if, you know, all the characters are the same clan and maybe they all have the same sire 
or the sires of the characters all work together towards some goal or something like that, then those might be instances where, you know, these young vampires are brought together to do things before they're even out on their own yet, um, where you might begin the game where, you know, the player's characters are still in this like childhood state where um, they really, really have to be careful um, what they do and they have to do what their sire says. But a lot of times you would, you would skip past that. But the, the prelude dealt with all of this. And it was really nice because, and, and this is something I've done in other games. Um, my last, uh, actually my last, I think, two D&D campaigns that I ran that were my own campaigns, uh, I did this with the players where we did preludes, um, individual preludes ahead of time. Um, this is also where my vignette idea that I used in, in my last D&D campaign uh, that the actual play is is in this feed. Um, that's where that that idea grew out of this idea of the prelude, the, the vignettes that I did through the campaign with with the players. But uh, yeah, that's where that's where this came from, and I've used it since in a lot of games. Anytime I could, um, I did. I used it because it's a really great way to help the player flesh out their character before they're, you know, in a group with everyone else. It's a really great way for you as the GM to get to know their character and to get some idea of what they want to do with the character, some ideas of what you might want to do with the character, um, to flesh out their backstory a bit more. And it just really helped the player on that first session when everybody gets together for the first time to really know their character well and have things to role play and be able to hit the ground running in a way that you normally can't do in a lot of other games like D&D where you don't have this idea of a prelude and everybody just, you know, shows up together and no one really knows who their character is yet, much rather who the other characters are yet. And the GM is relying on a backstory or something that the player wrote up to pull from. And it's just a lot easier when you had a prelude with that player in which you discussed all that stuff to remember, you know, oh, you have this thing from your childhood that you want to come in later or something like that. So as far as a prelude and vampire, here are some questions that they suggest you and the player answer together during the prelude. And I think this will give you a better idea of, of what these preludes were like. So how old are you? Which is to say, how old were you when you died, when you were made into a vampire? Because once you're made into a vampire, you no longer age physically. So, you know, if you were 38 when you were turned into a vampire, you will forever look like you're 38. What was unique about your childhood? What kind of person were you? When did you first meet a vampire? How did the embrace change you? Who was your sire? How did your sire treat you? Were you presented to the prince or did your sire not do that and you're illegal in the city, which would be very dangerous for you? How did you meet the others in your brood, which is the the party? That's what they called the party of play, player characters. They called them a brood. So how did you meet the other player characters? Where is your haven? So that's where you slept during the day. Um, where do you, you know, where's your coffin at? You didn't have to sleep in a coffin, but you did have to have somewhere safe to sleep out of the sunlight during the day where uh, humans wouldn't find you or mess with you. What are your habitual feeding grounds? What motivates you? So those are some of the things that, that as a storyteller, you could go over with the player during the prelude. And yeah, I just think the prelude is a brilliant idea. And, you know, if you're playing a game or running a game that, that doesn't use the prelude, I, I suggest use it. 
Um, if you can, you know, it, it does take a bit of time on your part as a GM because you got to get together with each player individually sometime after they've made their character, but before the first session. So that can be challenging sometimes. But if you can do it, um, it's it's a really great experience and, and it really adds a lot of depth uh, to the game. All right, so I was just looking at the runtime of the recording right now. And of course, it's going to be different once I edit this. But uh, I'm I'm already over an hour and um, the last episode was pretty long. I think it was like an hour and a half or something. And uh, I really don't, I really don't want the show to be that long. Um, I think I think I lose people when it's that long. And I still have a lot to cover today, or not today, but a lot to cover about vampire that I haven't gotten into yet. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to do another episode just about vampire and continue this discussion. But looking at the topics I, I still want to cover. You know, today I've been talking a lot about what I learned as a storyteller or as a game master from from Vampire and its approach to running games. And, you know, we got a little bit into the mechanics with the difficulties, but uh, we haven't gotten deep into the mechanics of, of Vampire specifically yet. And that's what a lot of uh, the rest of this stuff is. So today I want to wrap it up with the archetypes. And um, I mentioned these in the previous episode, and I really wanted to go through some examples with you just to help you better understand the archetypes and how they work. And Vampire especially is a game where these really shine. So yeah, we'll talk about the personality archetypes, and and then we'll wrap up this episode. And then uh, next week, um, we're going to go into these mechanics specific to vampires. I'll tell you about the different clans of vampires and what they're like, the d- different disciplines, which are the different powers that the vampires have and what, what those are. And um, we'll go into some of how you know, vampires work mechanically, what they can do, yeah, their, their abilities, things like that. And that'll be a lot of fun. But yeah, today let's, uh, let's wrap this up talking about the personality archetypes. So one thing that's really cool uh, in these games, to just recap a little bit from the last episode, is this concept of your nature and your demeanor. And again, I talked about this in detail last episode, so you can check that out. But just to recap, your nature is is a description of your personality, but it's who you really are, who you are deep inside. This is the person that your really close friends know. This is the person that your family knows, the real you. What makes you tick, really? And then your demeanor is your mask that you wear out in society. It's the facade that you show to everyone else who doesn't know you well enough to know the real you. So those could be similar. You know, some people are just very honest. They're very straightforward. They're very much, you know, what you see is what you get. And that is someone whose nature and demeanor uh, would be quite similar or might even be exactly the same. But in Vampire especially, you were really encouraged to have some difference between your nature and your demeanor. Uh, vampires, as a rule, are very cunning and manipulative. They live basically forever. Um, they plot and they scheme uh, against one another. And so no vampire who's been around very long at all and survived is what they seem. They are always presenting an illusory self to other vampires to hide any weaknesses they might have, 
to prevent other vampires from maybe figuring out what their plans are or what their goals are or anything like that. So in Vampire specifically, you were encouraged when you were making your player character to have natures and demeanors that were quite different. So, you know, the self that you show to the other vampires and humans that you meet and whatever could be a very, very different person to who you really were. And your nature and your demeanor, um, you picked a, per- a personality archetype for both that described who your true self is and then what is this mask that you wear. So I thought it would be fun to just go through some examples of some of these personality archetypes. You know, these were given in the core book for each game. And then usually in one of the supplements for for the games, usually the player's guide, they would have a lot more archetypes you could choose from. And you could always come up with your own too. So I'm not going to go through all of these because there's a lot of them, but I'll just uh, cherry pick a few. And, and again, there's just one list of archetypes, personality archetypes, and then you choose one of these for your nature and you choose one of these for your demeanor. And, you know, if you're a vampire and, you know, you want to be duplicitous and cunning and all those things, then, you know, they, they may be quite, quite different. So architect is an archetype. Your sense of purpose goes beyond your own needs. You try to create something of lasting value for those who will come after you. People need many things and you gain satisfaction by providing whatever you can. You are the type of person who makes an effort to build something of value, to found a town, create a company, or in some way leave a lasting legacy. Many American pioneers were architects by nature. And then another cool thing with the archetypes is there's a trait in the game called willpower and all of the games had this. And you had a permanent willpower rating that went from 1 to 10. Most characters in most games started out with a 5. And willpower was your force of will. Your your ability to really focus on something and really make thing, something happen just through willpower, through force of will. And this was represented... Sometimes you would roll your willpower, but you also had willpower points. So if you had a 5 willpower rating... Then you had five willpower points you could spend. You could spend one of those points to get an automatic success on whatever roll you were rolling. As a vampire, you would get a willpower point back every time you slept through the day um, as part of that. And in the other games, you know, you would just get a willpower point back when you slept. You know, you got a good night's sleep. Um, But another way that you could get willpower back was by role playing your nature. So each of these archetypes. Uh, suggest how you, if that's your nature, how you would get willpower back. So for instance, the architect, you regain willpower whenever you create or establish something of importance or lasting value. So that was a really cool aspect of the game that you were rewarded mechanically by playing your nature, by role playing your character. That was super cool. Let's see, let's find another archetype conformist. Let's try this one. You are a follower. Taking charge is just not your style. It's easy for you to adapt, attune, adjust, comply, and reconcile yourself to whatever new situation you find yourself in. You flit to the brightest star, the person whom you feel to be the best, throwing your lot in with her. It is both difficult and distasteful for you to go against the flow or rebel. You hate inconsistency and instability and know that by supporting a strong leader, you help prevent chaos from occurring. All stable groups need some kind of conformist. So a conformist, you regain willpower whenever your group, the brood, the 
the player character group, accomplishes something because of your support and aid. Oh, here's a great one for vampires. Conniver. What's the sense of working hard when you can get something for nothing? Why drudge when just by talking you can get what you want? You always try to find the easy way out, the fast track to success and wealth. Some people might call what you do swindling or even outright theft, but you know that you only do what everyone else does. You just do it better. Additionally, it's a game, and you get great pleasure out of outwitting someone. Connivers play many roles, so you may be a thief, a swindler, a street waif, an entrepreneur, a con man, or just a finagler. So a conniver regains willpower whenever you are able to get your way by tricking another person into doing as you wish. That would be a fun one to role play, right? Um, let's see. Deviant. Oh, this is a great one for the Toreadors, which I guess you probably don't know what that means because I haven't talked about the clans yet. But Deviant Archetype, there are always people who don't fit in and you are such a miscreant. Your beliefs, motivations, and sense of propriety are the complete antithesis of the status quo. You are not so much an aimless rebel as an independent thinker who does not belong in the society in which you were raised. Wow, I kind of kind of vibe with that. <laughs> you don't give a damn about other people's morality, but you do adhere to your own strange code of conduct. Deviants are typically irreverent, and some have truly bizarre tastes and desires. As a deviant, you regain willpower whenever you are able to thumb your nose at society and its precepts without retaliation. And most often, this is referring to vampire society rather than mortal society. Because as a vampire, mortal society doesn't really matter much to you. Uh, let's see. Let's grab one more. Ba, ba, ba. Oh, let's try traditionalists. This will be a fun one for vampires, probably. You are an orthodox, conservative, and extremely traditional individual. What was good enough for you when you were young is good enough for you now. You almost never change. In general, you are opposed to change for the sake of change. What point is there in that? You may be seen by some as a miser, a reactionary, or simply an old fogey. You strive to always preserve the status quo. You regain willpower whenever you are able to protect the status quo and prevent change. And you know what? As a bonus, let's do one more because right after this, we have the visionary, which is uh, kind of the opposite of the traditionalist. There are very few who are brave or strong or imaginative enough to look beyond the suffocating embrace of society and mundane thought and see something more. Society treats such people with both respect and contempt, for it is the visionary who perverts as well as guides society into the future. You may be a spiritualist, shaman, new ager, mystic, philosopher, or inventor, but whatever you are, you are always looking for something more. You see beyond the bounds of conventional imagination and create new possibilities. Though you might have your head in the clouds and are often of an impractical bent, you are filled with new ideas and perceptions. You regain willpower whenever you are able to convince others to believe in your dreams and follow the course of action outlined by your vision of the future. So there you go. That's just a few archetypes. And again, you would pick one of these that is your nature, and then you'd pick one that is your demeanor. So imagine, right now, I just had a character idea just by looking at some of these for a fun vampire, a vampire that would be fun to play. Imagine your character has the nature of visionary. So you are a visionary. Deep down inside, your true self you are a visionary. 
you look to the future, you want to, you, you have these ideas for a better future, you want to bring it to reality. That's your nature. You're a visionary. That's what you really are. But let's say your demeanor is traditionalist, which is pretty much the opposite. So you're really a, a visionary, but you are trying to present yourself to all the other vampires as a traditionalist, which is the opposite. You know, so deep down inside, you really want to bring about a new, better future. But whenever you're around other vampires, you act like you want things the way they were back in the good old days, which actually would be a great way to suck up to the old vampires, right? You're basically agreeing with, with the way they see things, while deep down inside, you actually feel and think the opposite. So that is a way, you know, that you could play a character who has a nature and demeanor that are pretty much opposite of one another and why such a character might be that way. Um, that would actually be a character that would make a lot of sense in the vampire society because the, the most powerful vampires tend to be the oldest vampires. And we're talking about vampires. So you're, you could be talking about vampires that are hundreds of years old. And, you know, they tend to like things done the way they were done when they were alive. That's kind of a thing of vampires is a lot of them, um, they are not very big on change and, and they tend not to change much beyond, you know, the way they saw the world when, when they were humans. So, you know, these vampires that are hundreds of years old are often very antiquated, antiquated, I can't even say that word, antiquated. <laughs> there we go. Um, I was trying to say antiquity, but that's the, the wrong word. They, they are very antiquated, antiquated. <laughs> Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, they would be extremely conservative, uh, by our standards. And yeah, they're, they're like, you know, the old man that, that wants things to be the way they, they were when he was a kid and, and doesn't like all these new gadgets and all these new, uh, social changes and whatnot. So that's how the, the movers and shakers in the vampire world tend to be. So it definitely makes sense for, for a younger vampire who's trying to, uh, rise in the ranks uh, who is very different from that to pretend to be that to curry favor with these very powerful vampires. It, it makes perfect sense. And I think is a great illustration of how and why um, you, you could play a vampire character who has nature and demeanor that are, that are completely opposite. And, you know, I think you can see how that would be a lot of fun to play as a character. And I think you can see also that let's say you're making this character to play in a vampire game. You haven't even done your prelude yet with the, the storyteller. You haven't even played with the other players yet. And already you have things you can role play with this character because you have this nature and this demeanor and you can, you get to role play both of them and they're opposite. So, you know, think of the subtle ways you could play this character where you're always pretending to be, this traditionalist curmudgeon, but deep down you are a visionary and every once in a while that's going to show through, especially when you're with people who really know you and probably know you're a visionary, like for instance, the other player characters maybe. And you haven't even played this character. You haven't even done the prelude and already your head is probably filling with fun things you could do just because of the nature and demeanor and things you can do with this character and what their personality is like. And how many times have you felt that way about a D&D &D character when you're in the same situation. You know, you haven't gotten together with the GM, you haven't uh, played the character at all. You know, how often do you have that clear sense of who this character is and also these really exciting ways that you can role play the character? 
you you may have felt that before with with D and D characters, but if that's so, it's because you you put in a lot of extra effort, right? You went way above and beyond uh, what's described in the player's handbook as far as making your character to really make that character a real living, breathing character, which is awesome if you do that. But um, yeah, when this book came out in ninety one, the first edition, I think that's when it came out. Uh, this was this was pretty new stuff to a lot of us. And um, at least for me, it totally changed the way I thought about RPGs going forward after that point. So yeah, um, we will put a pin in this here. And then in episode 295, I will return to Vampire the Masquerade. Um, some of the things I will talk about that you can look forward to, I will talk about the, the, uh, various clans of vampires, what they're like, the disciplines that the vampires have, which are their supernatural powers and abilities, the, uh, supernatural powers and abilities that all vampires have, no matter what clan they are. Part of that will be talking about the blood pool, uh, which is a system that, that I love. And this is one of the things they, they really screwed over in, in fifth edition and completely changed to something that I don't like nearly as well or at all, but your, your blood pool, uh, represented how much blood you had in you. Um, because as a vampire, you, you know, you have to drink blood, uh, occasionally to, to keep going. And you also use that blood to power a lot of your supernatural abilities. Um, so the blood pool was the mechanic that was used to, to cover all of that. And it's really cool and a lot of fun. And, uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about backgrounds. So I talked about backgrounds last episode, but I'll, I'll go through some of the vampire, the vampire backgrounds, backgrounds specific to vampire. Although a lot of these are in all the games, um, to give you a better idea of what kinds of things the backgrounds covered. And we'll talk about the virtues and humanity. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about XP and, and how that worked and, and how, um, character progression worked. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about how damage in combat worked and healing and stuff like that. Cause that was a really cool system as well. And, uh, was also pretty in- innovative at the time. Although a lot of games or, or at least, I don't know if a lot of games, but, but quite a few games I've played, uh, since then use systems similar to this. For instance, a uh, Numenera's damage track system is very clearly an iteration on this. It's almost, uh, copy pasted from this. It's basically the same thing. Um, just, you know, converted to a different system. So it's a really cool way to represent damage. And as I discussed last week, it's a lot more realistic than something like hit points. And then uh, finally, we'll we'll talk about the vampire frenzy, which is pretty fun. So yeah, hopefully I can get through all that next episode. I, I will do my best, but I, I think I'll be able to. I think uh, I burned up a lot of time today just gushing a bit about how much I love these games and how much they they shaped me as a GM and uh, yeah, let me know if you'd like to hear uh, a treatment like this for Changeling and or Mage, let me know. Also, let me know if you would like more information, more details, more specifics from uh, the chapters about storytelling slash game mastering and their approach to that and, and what I learned from that. Um, I just really flew over that and just hit a hit a few highlights but, uh, you know, if you'd like to hear more detail about that, then uh, let me know. And, and that's something I could do. 
And a great way to do that is to email me at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. You can also call my voicemail 951-GMJ-LEX-1. That's 951-465-5391. Finally, you can join our community on Discord and come talk RPGs with us there or whatever else you want to talk about. So you can find links to all those things or, or the voicemail if you didn't catch it uh, on the show notes on my website at lexstarwalker.com slash GMJ. Finally, if you would like to support this podcast, you can find out how you can do that at lexstarwalker.com slash support. A great way to support the show is by becoming a patron. I really appreciate all my patrons and, uh, you know, a little benefit that, that the patrons get at, uh, I think the tier two level is they get early access to the, to these episodes. So as soon as I get the episode done, uh, the patrons get it right now instead of, uh, whenever it comes out for, for everyone else. So, uh, yeah. And you can just, uh, support what I'm doing and, and help me to keep making these podcasts. So yeah, thank you so much for tuning in today and uh, hope you'll join me next time to talk some more about Vampire. In the meantime, I hope you have a chance to play an RPG and I hope you have a chance to run an RPG. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.